Hey there, my name is Roy and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. We're so glad you've joined us this morning for our online service. And uh, we're, we're beginning part five of our series, Lost in Translation. Now, have you ever had a moment where things just didn't go the way that you expected it to? Like you had this idea of how something was gonna, how something was gonna go or the way it was gonna turn out and it just didn't? Well, a number of years ago, McDonald's brought out this, this uh, new line of signature sandwiches. And so I decided one day, I was with my wife, Jen, and we decided that we were going to pull in. I was going to try one of these sandwiches. And I ordered it through the drive-thru. And then Jen and I pulled over, and uh, we tr- tried to grab a quick bite to eat. And as I bit into this sandwich, it was one of their chicken sandwiches, as I bit into it, it just had this terrible, awful taste. So I pulled back the bun, and to my horror, the cheese that was on this sandwich was all moldy. And it was, it was sickening. And this was well before social media, because if this happened during social media, you know how that, this all works out. Somebody posted online, it becomes, people start commenting, McDonald's is tagged, and it becomes this big, big news story. But making a scene, that's really just not my personality. It's not something that I would be looking to do. But I did think it was my responsibility to let the manager know that, you know, the food that you're sending out through this drive through window, it really has potential to harm someone who's eating this, this awful moldy food. So I went into the restaurant, and I was trying to be kind of indiscreet, and, and I had my moldy sandwich in hand, and I asked to speak to a manager. And I pulled the manager to the side. Again, I didn't want to make a scene, and I said to the manager, hey, listen, uh, I don't want to make a scene here. I don't want to make this into a big deal. I'm not looking to sue McDonald's or anything, but this sandwich is, I think you need to know what you're sending out. And I was kind of proud of how I handled it, that I didn't make this big commotion and, or in the way some people might actually. And so the manager takes the sandwich and looks at it and then looks at me and says, um, sir, you ordered the blue cheese chicken sandwich. This is blue cheese. This is what it's supposed to look and taste like. But, you know, if you didn't like the sandwich, I can order a new one for you and you can try something. No big deal. In that moment, I think on my face must have went bright red. I was embarrassed that I thought this was all going to go one way and it didn't. And I was like, um, yeah, great. I'll, I'll take a different sandwich. Well, I learned a couple things on that day. Number one, I learned that I don't like blue cheese. And I'm, number two, I'm really grateful that I didn't make a scene because that would have been even more embarrassing. And I'm glad that there was no social media because it would have been ruthless in the comments of me posting this. It's really weird when our expectation doesn't meet our reality. I want you to use your imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine that you've just arrived in Canada for the very first time. You came from a country that's a little bit under, underdeveloped. So when you came to Canada, you're seeing things for the first time ever. The buildings are huge. You've never seen this many cars. The, you've never been to a Walmart. And, and all, everything's new. Everything's fantastic. And then someone hands you a Bible. And this is the first time you've seen a Bible. And they say, I want you to read through this Bible. And when you're done reading through it, I'm going to invite you to come to church with me for the very first time. Again, everything's new. You've never seen so many many big and and crazy things. And so you start to read, read through your Bible. 
And you take it all at face value. You start in the beginning and you start reading about the creation story and Adam and Eve. And you see the, the story of Noah's Ark. And, and, and then, then you learn about King David. And, and there's story after story. Daniel in the lion's den. The, the life of Job. The prophets. The kings. Then you get to the New Testament. And you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. You read through the life of Jesus. So it gets to a spot where Jesus is crucified and then dies for your sin and for your salvation. And then he, then he comes back to life. And you read through Acts. And you read the, 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 the beginnings of the early church and how the Holy Spirit came upon them and, 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 and gave them power and multiplied not just the, the, the movement within the, the, the region, but internationally. And then you read through Revelations and you come to the very end. And then you show up for, for, for church the very first time. Now let me ask you this. Would what you read in the Bible match your experience at church? Would, would your experience at church match the expectation of what you thought church would be? I would say probably not. And there's a reason for this. Because so often in church, we talk about the things of God. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the mercy of God. We talk about His grace and power. We talk about His never-ending love. But we talk about Him intellectually and then leave and act as if all of that wasn't really that real. And if you're honest, and I think most of us, I think most of us do this, but I'm only going to talk about me because I can only talk about me, and that's easier because if we pretend I'm the only one who does that, that's a lot more comfortable. But there are times when I read through a story in the Bible and I think, well, that was great for them. I mean, that was amazing for their time, for their culture. It was amazing for that place in history. But I don't relate because, well, that's just not my experience. Today I want to talk to you about this concept that we talk about in Christian circles, but from the outside, I don't know, I don't even know inside Christian circles if we really fully grasp this, this concept of the fear of God. And if we're not careful, we can lump this into the irrelevant pile that we kind of gloss over and we can miss. But if you, if you truly don't grasp this concept, this idea of the fear of God, his love, his grace, his power, his forgiveness will not truly make full sense until you understand the fear of God. So today we're going to look at Psalm 111, verse 10. And Psalms means praises. And, and Psalms is this incredible book of, of songs and, and, and prayers that were written by various authors, but roughly half of them are written by King David. And David writes Psalm 111 in this season where he's just pouring out his, his, his life, his soul to God. And in doing so, he uses this phrase that's not original to him. Fear of God. Fear of God. You will find this concept over 300 times throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament alone, 30 times or so. And, and if this item fear, because we, we, we look at this item fear and we think well, what we're talking about is reverence. What we're talking about is respect. But if the term fear only meant reverence, then the English translators wouldn't maintain the word fear over and over again. So David writes this in Psalm 111.10. He says, fear of the Lord is foundational, or is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. Praise him forever. David says, if you'd like to have true wisdom, and I mean, 
Who doesn't want who doesn't want to be characterized as someone who's wise, who has wisdom? I mean, especially in comparison to what the alternative is. If you want true wisdom, it begins with this idea of fearing God. It's such a weird phrase, the fear of God. Like, why would a God who loves you and cares for you and wants a relationship with you, someone that, you, that you're told to put your full trust into, why would, why would he want you to fear him? I mean, if a child came up to you and said, I fear my father, and they were referring to the father that they live with, lots of red flags would go up. So why would the God of the universe want you to fear him? It, it feels like it makes no sense. Again, when this, this concept's taught in church, it's taught in a partially correct way. What many people will say is, when we are talking about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about reverence. We're talking about the awe of God. And this is kind of true. It's kind of true. When we step back and we view God's power, the beauty of his creation, the universe that's all around us, we stand back in awe and, and wonder. Because he wants you to have reverence. He wants you to have respect for him. And for some of us, we just need to start right there. We need to start, we need to be reminded how big God is, how powerful and awesome he is. Because we have shrunk him down to this size that's a little more, a little more manageable for us. We, we've tried to take this all-knowing, all-powerful, mighty God and condense them to something that our finite minds can wrap our, the, themselves around. So in doing so, you take this powerful, nothing-is-impossible type of God and you reduce him to something that sells him short. And, and then your faith in him is d- diminished in the process. So perhaps we need to start here. We need to start by fearing him with awe and reverence. Because answer this for yourself. Do you live a life that shows God honor and reverence at all times? I would say that many of us don't. Maybe we need to start right here. Again, I'll start with me. I think there's times where I get caught up in in caring about things that are sort of selfish in nature rather than the things that God cares about. I forget about the people that God cares about in focus of the things that I want. There might be times where you put your focus on other things other than what God cares about. I mean, we've seen people less committed to church than in previous generations. And this has nothing to do with COVID because this was prevalent way before we even knew or heard of this virus. At one point, church was a huge priority. I mean, my parents' generation were in church three to four times a month in order to consider themselves active within their church community. Today, there's many, many studies that show that the average Christian would consider themselves an active member of their community if they attend once every five or six weeks. Now, don't mistake this. Occupying a seat in a building once a week for an hour That does not make you a Christian. But if God values surrounding yourself with God's word, dedicated to worshiping him, and surrounded by community that will journey with you in faith, why wouldn't worship gatherings be a priority in our week compared to some of the things that we give our attention to? Now just believe me, if you're watching this from home today, uh, that's not me saying that you should be here in this building right now because there are circumstances outside of our control right now. But we need to make our time with God a huge priority. 
It's like we've decided that this idea that fearing God is so big that we don't really need to fear him, we just need to revere him. And if you're really honest with yourself, many of us don't even do that part really well. Revering God, being in awe of God, well, that seems like a good thing. When I read through the Bible, I don't really read it that way. Because if you read through the Bible, you will come across story after story where an angel will show up, a representative of God. And the angels in the Bible, they're strong, they're mighty, they're overwhelming in size and power. And when the angels appear to someone in the Bible, the people that they appear to are so afraid, they immediately fall on their face. They're often described as warriors, even sword in hand. But see, during the Victorian era, many of the artists began to paint angels as as feminine figures with halos and wings, what we kind of know them as, sometimes baby cherubs. And so when we think of angels, we think more precious moments than, say, He-Man. When we cast angels in our plays or our, our dramatic productions for churches, we tend to look for young girls or women. Imagine this. Because if we were going to be, if we were going to be more uh, right on with our with our casting, imagine this: we we're doing this dramatic production. We need a bunch of angels, and we're like, okay, where are the 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 biggest, most muscular, intimidating men in our church? Let's dress them up as angels. Let's go get them. But when the angels appear in the Bible, one of the things that is said to the people over and over when the angel appears and they fall down on their face in fear is the angel will often say, "This, fear not. Fear not." Because the power that is on display in front of them is overwhelming that they fall to their face, that the angel needs to say, hey, get up, fear not. And they fall to their face not out of reverence, they fall to their face from fear. They're scared in this moment. They are so, in this moment, they are terrified. See, there's several times in the, in the Bible where God shows up to people, shows up himself in front of people. In the Old Testament, we read stories of Isaiah and Ezekiel, where they have visions of God, and it says that they were overwhelmed by his appearance. In Isaiah's case, he thinks he's going to die, literally going to die from the experience. In the New Testament, John, one of, one of Jesus' closest disciples, comes face to face with Jesus after he has died, after he has been resurrected and come back to life. And Jesus presents himself to John, and John immediately falls on his face and says, I'm not worthy. He's overwhelmed in the moment. I mean, when you read through the stories of people who have come into the presence of God, it is so prevalent that they are filled with fear. It's not just reverence. So you need to understand that we need to fear God. But it just leads to the question, how does that make any sense? Have you ever had a moment where you were, you were so afraid? A moment where you didn't even know if you would make it through? One of the scarier moments in my life was when my daughter Janelle was around eight years old. And we traveled back to Oshawa to spend some time with family at Christmas and And Janelle, leading into Christmas, was not feeling well for a couple days. And as you know, for an eight-year-old kid, if they're not not excited during Christmas, you know there's something a little bit off. So on Boxing Day, she she began, began to feel a little bit better. She was starting to feel like she had an appetite again. We thought, okay, good. I think we might be out of the woods with this thing. 
So Jen and I went, we went Boxing Day shopping, and we left Janelle behind with Jen's mom. And we were only at the mall for about half an hour when Jen's mom called and said, you need to get home. There's something's off with Janelle. Her, her color is not good. She's not doing well. And so we rushed home, and we got her to the walk-in clinic. And when the walk-in clinic looked at her, they said, you need to take her right to the hospital right now. And so what we, what we found out after was the, uh, Janelle had an appendicitis. That's what was making her sick. And when she started to feel better, it was because the appendix had actually ruptured at that point, which gave her some temporary relief. But now the infection was spreading through her body, and she needed to have surgery. So when we got to the hospital, we weren't there hardly at any time at all where they were before we could even process it. They were rushing her off to have emergency surgery. And this surgery was supposed to be a couple hours, but it took more than twice that long. And if you've ever been in that situation as a parent, you know that you feel helpless in the moment. There's a number of questions that go through your mind of what could we have done, done differently. So we're waiting on pins and needles. There's no one else around but our family, and it's late at night, and we're waiting for the doctor's report that just to come and tell us that our little girl would be fine. And eventually the doctor does come out of surgery, and he walks down the hallway, and he takes off his mask, and he says, well, it was worse than we anticipated. And if we could stop right in that moment, because that's where my heart stopped. That's where Jen's heart sunk. She didn't hear another word after that. Fear just grips you. It overtakes you because we were expecting that maybe he would say that she didn't make it through the surgery. But he finished with, it was worse than we thought. There was a lot of infection, but she's going to be okay. Now, if I had some advice, I'm not a doctor, but if I've got some advice for a doctor, flip that. Lead with, she's going to be okay. There was a, a lot of infection, but we got all of it. Do the opposite, because that was just, it was the worst way to present it. I don't know if you've had this moment where fear just overtakes you. But if you take that moment and take that picture, that's what, when we encounter God, that, that the way it grips us is how we should come into his presence. Uh, afraid, fearful, unable to function. That's the picture he paints for us. We are to fear God. And I know what you're thinking right now, but hang with me here. For most of us, our church experience doesn't match that at all. We try to understand to the best of our ability God's love and God's and our, put our trust in God to, to know him, but we can't fully do that unless we really understand what it means to fear God. In the Bible, they tended to do what we do. Make God smaller so we can get our minds around him. And Isaiah, who we talked a little bit about earlier, says in Isaiah 44, 6, and this is God speaking to Isaiah, and in this moment, God, Isaiah would often question at times God's power. He, he, would, he would kind of go up and down in his, in his faith journey where he would, you know, he would speak on God's behalf. He was loved God, but then there would be times when he'd be angry and bitter towards God and, and question him. And God says this, and I need you to grasp this because it's so strong. This is his response. This is God's voice. He says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. Verse 7. Who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. God says, you think you're powerful, but I'm infinite. 
I am, I am infinite. You are limited. I am not. You have weakness. I don't. If you think there's another God, someone more powerful, present him to me. God tells Isaiah, if you think there's someone that knows more or more powerful, remind him that I'm the one that created them, and I can see their future, and I'm the one that knows the day they will breathe their last breath. He says, Isaiah, I am the Lord your God, and you are to fear me. Not just revere me, but you are to fear me. And then God does something funny, because let's face it, none of us really likes that God. None of us likes the God that is fearful, that inspires fear. We want a God that we can manage, one that we can get our head around. So we can get a little, we get a little bit of an attitude at times, a, a sort of a know-it-all attitude when it comes to God. Because we'll say things like, well, if I was God, you know, if I was God, I would have eliminated, eliminated this whole COVID thing long ago. If I was God, this group of people would never get into heaven because of what they did. You know, if I was God, I, I wouldn't have to deal with this physical pain. But God looks at Isaiah and says, do you know who you're talking to? You are to fear me. But then he says in verse 8, do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witness. Is there any other God? No. There is no other rock, not one. So why does God do this? Why, why does in one breath he take this whole time to present who he is that you should fear him? And then the next breath says, do not be afraid. And going back to Isaiah, Isaiah has this experience with God where he falls on his face and then later says to Isaiah, Isaiah, get up. You don't need to be afraid. You're forgiven. John, Jesus' disciple, after seeing Jesus resurrected, he falls on his face and Jesus says, John, get up. You don't need to be afraid. See, God knows this. It's so important. God knows that what you fear, you are subject to. What it is that you fear controls you. What you fear sets the boundaries of your freedom. So why does God want you to fear him? Because God knows this. God knows that if you fear him, you won't fear anything else. If you fear him, you don't have to worry anymore. If you fear him, you don't have to live with anxiety. If you fear him, you can move past those smaller things that hang you up. If you fear him, he's bigger than anything else. So why would you be afraid? When you fear God, you fear nothing else. But the reverse is true. When you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Why would God want me to fear him and then say, don't be afraid? Because if you fear him, you are free from every other worry, every other circumstance. Theologian William Eisenhower said this, he is quoted as saying, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. 
He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nevertheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion. You see, throughout the Bible, God says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you so much. I want you to fear me, but I don't want you to be afraid of me. He calls you his child. See, I would, as a dad, I'd do anything for my kids. I'll go to great lengths to protect my kids. Say what you want about me, I can handle it. But you better not say anything about my kids. And that's how God feels about you. Fear me so that you can be free, but don't be afraid of me. See, fear is the proper response in God's presence. Because fear says, I understand who I am and who I'm not. Also, I understand who God is. If it's true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then it's true that you will never truly understand God's love until you begin to fear him. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, says this in Proverbs 19.23. He says, fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. Do you feel like this applies to you today? Do you feel secure right now? Do you feel protected from harm? There's lots of times I don't. But what God's trying to say to you is this. When you fear me, you won't be afraid anymore. Now you get to experience life. Would you say that you're a person that fears the Lord? Not so you can push God away further. It's actually meant to draw you closer. Fear him and don't be afraid means that you, you, you fear him and walk in freedom from all the other things that cause fear. Do you fear God? Here's my last thought. How do you practice fearing the Lord? Does that mean you're just supposed to be afraid all the time? One of the ways we do this is that we worship God. We put God in his proper place. When we remind ourselves of how big, how powerful, how all-knowing, how in control our God is, and we remind ourselves how we are not. Maybe you're here, and you've lived your life going to God and telling God how big your problems are. Well, maybe you need to flip that today. Maybe starting today, you need to go to your problems and tell them how big your God is. Maybe you've tried to reduce God to a God you can fully understand, fully wrap your mind around, instead of fully fearing God. What would it look like if we all feared the Lord, actually realized how big He is, how powerful that is, and then allowed it to draw us closer so that we would fear nothing else? And we would not, we need to fear God, but not be afraid of God. Let's pray. God, throughout your, throughout your word, it says that we need to come to you and, and be fearful, but not afraid. And it's hard to get our, our mind around sometimes. So how, how, can I be, how can I fear you but not be afraid? But God, I, I, I think of how you come before a father. And, and, and as, I, as I, come before, I come before my father, I want him to be proud of me. I don't want to disappoint I don't, want to, I don't want to have to face the, 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 the circumstances of my bad decisions. And so I'm fearful. 
in, in, in the same way, but I'm not afraid of my father. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be harmed. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be hit. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that uh, as, a, as a church, in every decision that we make, every, everything that we do, we would be a church that as known as they, we fear the Lord, but we're not afraid of you. So God, let that, let that drive our decisions. Let that drive our actions. And let it draw us closer. Because as we, if we fear you, we don't have to be afraid of anything. God, I ask this in your name. Amen.